Lit Chat listeners, this is PJ. And this is Bonnie. And we are bringing you December's version of Lit Chat. Bonnie, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to start with one for the season. Nice! It's one I just found, and I, it was a very quick read. And even if you don't normally read James Patterson, he wrote a book with a guy called Tad Safran. And it's called The Twelve Topsy-Turvy, Very Messy Days of Christmas. I have been seeing this one circulate quite a lot. We have Henry, Will, and Ella Sullivan. Henry is the father, Will and Ella are the children, and they have just, they lost their mother five years ago, and ever since they lost their mother, Christmas has not happened in their house. It's like their father, just no trees, no singing, no nothing, they do nothing for Christmas. Did they lose her during Christmas, or they no, just they lost just her, but he's just not lost enough. her, and he just, because his wife was the one that did everything for Christmas, and okay. so... When she died, he just kind of, he goes to work, he drinks a little heavily, trying to, you know, get over things. So he's heartbroken. Well, the kids decide, hey, we're going to try to find dad a mate. So they go out on a dating website, and they fill out a profile for their father. And they get an answer from a Ms. True Love. They don't give their address. They don't give their phone number. They don't put any personal information in this ad. So you're wondering, hmm, because all of a sudden, Mrs. True Love starts contacting them. Oh, creepy. Well, not so much contact. Is she starts sending gifts. Now, you have to remember that his wife's favorite song was The Twelve Days of Christmas. Oh, I could see why the title's but it is. So all of a sudden they start getting some weird Christmas gifts, quote unquote. And I say gifts because they live in Harlem, New York. And they start getting things like birds and chickens. Wait, are they alive? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. They get the partridge in the pear tree. Now his wife had this beautiful garden. When she died, he put padlocks on the gate to the garden and a deadbolt on the back door, and no one went in the backyard. It is overgrown. It's horrible. But now they have to have a place for all these birds and animals that start showing up. Because you remember one of the 12 days of Christmas was eight maids a-milking? Oh, Yes. Take that for what it's worth. Eight cows showed up with the maids to milk them for one of the things. So now, like I said, you got to remember they're in Harlem. They're in the middle of New York City. They start getting all these weird gifts. Well, after the first couple, there's this woman that shows up at the door. Supposedly, her name is Mariana, and she works with the city with animal control. So she shows up. And she, like, tells them, you know, that they have to pay a fine because they're not allowed to have certain things in the city. But she manages to work around it by saying, well, you know, it doesn't say you can't have this. It just says you have to have a place for them. It ends up being weird. And he's got a friend at work who is trying to help him keep his job because his boss, uh, Dean Grumpf, <laughs> has written this book that he has totally put down in all of his classes. <laughs> oh, no. 
because he said the guy just doesn't know how to write a book and his information is all wrong. But so now the dean has heard about it and he's ready to fire him. But his friend is trying to help him keep his job. So at one point, his friend invites the dean to Henry's house for dinner. You got to remember, we've got all this stuff going on in the house. Well, I was going to say, that's not much help to have invite the dean over to. But The French had invited the dean to his house, not... Yeah, well, he invited them to Dean's, to Henry's house to show how Henry is such a family man and can control things and everything. And Does a friend not know what's going on? No, he doesn't. They okay. have managed to keep this a secret, except from some of their neighbors who see all the animals showing up. But all the gifts are from some, some company with the name True Love in it. We're back to Ms. True Love. Everything comes from True Love orchards, true love aviary, true love this, or some combination of, but true love is in the name. Okay, I have to just pause here because you keep reminding me that this is in Harlem, New York, and really what needs to be reminded, you'll talk about this and I'm like, oh, that could be a cute Hallmark movie, but then I'm like, oh, but it's written by James Patterson. That's what needs to be reminded. Yes. <laughs> James Patterson wrote this. Yes, James Patterson wrote this. And I found it very touching and funny. My husband didn't like it. And he usually reads James Patterson and likes his stuff. He says, I could not get into this book. But I thought it was, it was a cute little funny Christmas story on getting back into the spirit and... You know, when you've lost someone and trying to get through that and and how cutting yourself off from other people doesn't help and that you need other people in your life. And it is just, I found it an absolutely wonderful little Christmas book. I just thought it was perfect. I'm intrigued, but I'm also surprised because I thought it was going to be like some murder mystery. No. It is not a murder mystery. It is. It has nothing to do with murder. Well, you know, because other you... than Henry wanted to murder a few of these things that showed up at his house, but he doesn't. He everything survives. I just have and... so many questions. Like, why would you keep the the animals? Why wouldn't you like send them off to like a barn? How can people not notice that there's animals? Like, and that I guess is part of the story. I mean, but I'm intrigued. It sounds it. I, it is intriguing. I just find I found it a very fun little Christmas story. And if I'm not mistaken, it's not too thick of a book, right? No, it's only. It's, I don't even think if it's 200 pages, it's barely 200 pages. It's not very thick. It's not very big. It's it read very quickly for me, especially. Mm-hmm. I I just zipped right through it. I just thought it was just a wonderful little Christmas story. I love it. Awesome. So, but I'm not going to give you any more particulars because, you know, we, we want you to read the book. Well, and it's interesting because I wouldn't have tied James Patterson to Christmas yeah. without some type of murder in there. So, interesting. Another book that I read was by John Sanford. He's the one that writes the Prey series with Lucas Davenport as his main character. He has now taken off on a new direction with Letty Davenport, Lucas's adopted daughter. Ooh. She has now grown up. She is now working for DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Actually, she's working for 
one of the senators and she's getting really bored silly because she's more of an action person like her dad is you okay. know so there's a something going on in texas. Oh, texas somebody is stealing oil this oil magnate guy says somebody is stealing his oil he doesn't know how he doesn't know where but he knows that it is going missing but it's not going missing in such great amounts that it's making an indent in his bottom line. He's really not losing that much money. But this guy is so particular that he knows it's being stolen. The senator says, okay, Letty's getting bored. Let's send her out with another guy, John Kaiser. And we'll send them out to Texas to see if they can figure out what's going on. Now, John Kaiser thinks, oh my God, I got stuck with this young girl to do a man's job, you know. So the first thing they do is, Letty obviously to this point has not carried a gun on the job, but now she is qualified to carry, she is allowed to carry a gun. The senator has set it up so that she has permission to carry a gun. So John Kaiser, being the man that he is, wants to know who he's working with. So he takes her to a firing range. Needless to say, she outfires him <laughs> with rifles, handguns, whatever he throws at her. She does better than he does. Well, you would think he would also know who the dad is. He hasn't bothered to check on mm. all of this stuff. That's his mistake. So now he figures, okay, she can have my back. She knows how to use a gun. You know, obviously, her dad taught her how to use a gun. But they end up finding out that there is this militia group, this kind of secretive militia group, that has figured out a way to literally steal oil. And then there's another oil guy who's kind of down on the dumps. He was His fields aren't producing, but he still has the wherewithal to process it or whatever. Okay. And so they've talked this guy into buying the oil or helping them move the oil so that they can sell it to other places. And they have taken, they, they like found an old beat up oil tanker truck and they painted it to match the companies that go into these oil fields and collect the oil to take it other places, but Ooh. they don't take it to the place they're supposed to take it to. Yeah. They take it to this other place where it's stored and then it's, later on shipped out and this is how they're making their money so now the big question is what are they using the money for so this is where letty and john come in they have figured out who's stealing the oil how they're stealing it but now they have to figure out what are they doing with the money well this militia group is very very against immigration and immigrants hmm. They go to Pershing, Texas, which is on the border. It's one of the, oh, what do you call it? Border cities? Yeah, one of the, but one of the gateway cities oh. into, into Texas. It's got a big bridge and everything. And from there, the militia shows up after they've amassed their money and amassed their group. And they arrive in Pershing and they close off the town so that no one can come in or go out without the militia knowing it. They blow up the 
transmission tower for the cell phones. There's only one in town. They get rid of it. So the only way they have contact outside of the city is they have one TV crew that has come in that they allow to transmit their demands or whatever okay. to the outside world, and they somehow get their answers back through this. And Letty has managed to infiltrate the TV crew's van and got a message out, but, you know, they still aren't exactly sure what they're going to do in person. And I can see that do. you're not going to tell us more. It's very modern day. I mean, it's it's extremely, you know, current event stuff. I could see this happening. Ooh. And I'm not sure that it hasn't happened mm-hmm. somewhere, at least parts of it. And I'm reading this going, oh my gosh, this could really, really happen. This is something that could happen in this day and age. And I'm like, this is scary stuff. Yeah. Now, I wonder, does it tell you why they picked Parachine out of any of the other border cities? Because of its size. Uh It was very small. It had one road in and one road out. It has some mountains and hills around it that kind of act as a natural barrier so that you only get the one road in and one road out. So it's great protection for them. Mm -hmm. And just the things that they did, this militia group did in the name of their organization just were very hard to take. I mean, that sounds very interesting. And yes. I don't know. I I think you're right. It probably is something that could happen. I mean. But that one is called The Investigator. And I assume that he's going to start maybe a series with The Investigator. Well, I'm assuming that she will not be working for the senator much longer. Or if she does, I'll have to She kind of does still. She still works for the senator, but it's like now she'll get these special assignments, I think. Because the senator really likes her working for him. We'll have to see where it goes. Nice. Okay, your turn. My turn. Well, I've only got one. So do you remember how they croaked? Yes. How easy it was to read and just quirky? Mm -hmm. Okay, this is along the same lines. It's called A History of the World Through Body Parts um, (laughs) and is written by Catherine Petrus and Ross Petrus. And it says the stories behind the organs, appendages, digits, and the like attached to or detached from famous bodies. (laughs) This was actually something that I got as a new book, and so as I was processing the new books, the cover intrigued me. The title obviously intrigued me. And so then I picked it up, and it is very much like how they croaked. Simple reading. They don't have the cool illustrations of the people that they're talking to, but it is that quirky history. And so the concept of this book comes from a quote by Blas Pascal, who I'm not sure who he was in history, but he said once, Cleopatra's nose, had it been shorter, the whole face of the world would have been changed. And so the author of the book, I guess she just really took this to heart, the idea of how famous people's body parts could have changed the world. And so she decided to write a book on it, which is a very interesting way to look at history and honestly not something that I think I've seen before. (laughs) Um, Well, I wouldn't either. Yeah, and it's not usually how we think of history. We don't think about somebody's body part having such a world effect. Some of the 
people that he writes about, and they're, these are very well-known people, you know. He talks about George Washington and Richard III and, uh, of course, Cleopatra. And so one of the examples that they give is Martin Luther, who was in charge of the Protestant Reformation. He's the one that did the thesis on the church, and I think it was like 96 thesis. The number might be wrong. But in this case, they're talking about Martin Luther's bowels, <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> Which is not something that I associate with Martin Luther, you know? But they talk about how, well, the title is Martin Luther's Bowels and how possibly a religious revolution was spawned in a not-so-spiritual place. Can you take a guess as to where that not-so-spiritual place Probably could be? Probably in the privy. There we go, ma'am. Yeah! So it turns out that his ideas for the Protestant Reformation mostly occurred while he was on the toilet, constipated. <laughs> and in fact, he alludes to this quite often, how these thoughts of reformation occurred to him oftentimes while he was in the toilet. So it's not even something that we can, like he doesn't even hint about it. He just flat out says it. Like this, revo this reformation <laughs> comes from me being on the toilet. That's interesting. And you just, I don't know, it's those things where it's like, well, what if he hadn't been constipated so often? How would that have changed, right? If he hadn't had so much time on the toilet? to think about these things. We'll never know. No, it's, and once again, like I said, it's interesting because when you talk about Martin Luther, I don't associate. The first thing to come to mind is not his bowels. And then, you know, as it talks about, you know, his symptoms and his constipation and what he had to deal with, then there's also these like quirky little side stories. For example, like Luther's trials and tribulations, the devil's punches. Or he'll talk about Luther's lavatory located at last, and he'll talk about how they actually found the famous lavatory where he had these amazing thoughts, where that lavatory is and what happened to it. So, I mean, just quirky stuff. Another one is Marat, who was a well-known French revolutionist. I don't know if people are familiar, but Jacques Louis David, who is known for painting the famous picture of Napoleon Bonaparte on his horse. Okay. About to conquer. Okay. He also has another painting about the death of Marat. And it's the man who's in the tub and he's been killed. Can't say as I know that one. I think if you see it, you might be aware of it. But they're talking about how Marat's skin led to propaganda art. And so, and how this artist, having painted his death scene, actually ended up revitalizing the image of Marat. Because at the time of the French Revolution, Marat was not very favored by the revolutionist. But then once he ends up dying, this painting comes along. And of course, the painting is propaganda because the way he dies on the... Well, all right, for those of you who do not know, Marat had a skin condition, and the only way to, um, I guess, not fix the skin condition, but the only way that he could get relief was to be in the tub. So he spent a lot of his time in the tub because that's the only relief he could get from his skin. Not quite sure what he had going on with the skin, 
but he ends up um, actually being killed in the tub. There's a female by the name of Charlotte, cannot remember her last name, but basically she ends up talking to him under the disguise that she's going to give up these anti-revolutionists. And while she's naming these names as he's writing them in his tub, she ends up stabbing him to death. Okay. So that's how he ends up dying. He ends up dying in the tub, stabbed to death. Which then makes you think, would it have been easy to have killed him if he weren't in a tub? Because it's the most vulnerable place you can be, right? Right. You can't run away. Kind of slippery. Yes. You're also naked. <clears throat> you don't have much around you so it's like the perfect opportunity to kill someone because it's them that they're most vulnerable but then as they're talking about this they're talking about how this painting did a lot for Marat in the sense that by that time before his death people didn't like him as much he was on the outskirts of the revolution and once he ended up dying through this painter he became famous again. He became a martyr. Okay. And you know, the way the the way Marat is posed is almost kind of like a religious pose. It mentions one of the religious art pieces where Jesus Christ is in the hands of Mother Mary and they almost pose him like that. Yeah. It ends up doing so much for his um, identity. It's the idea that, like, had it not been for his skin and the fact that he needed to be in the tub to get some relief, then none of the stuff would have happened. Right. So I, I just find it interesting. Then another one is um, they talk about Harriet Tubman. And Harriet Tubman, she always said that she had visions and she had the ability to hear voices. And she always attributed these visions and these voices to God. This only happened to her after a weight was hurtled towards her, which caused her skull to fracture. Apparently, if you read it in the book, it says that sometimes this effect can be called savant syndrome, but it wasn't after she had her skull fractured that she was able to see visions and hear voices. And she's credited these visions and voices with her success in the Underground Railroad. So um, basically getting beamed on the head and getting a skull fracture yeah, because it clearly affected her brain. Not saying that she couldn't have gotten messages from God, but... The brain is still very mysterious to us, and our ability to be able to understand what we can and cannot do. So another one is uh, Mary Malone's gallbladder, which Mary Malone is also called Typhoid Mary. She cleaned houses and cooked for rich people. And she was asomatic. So she had typhoid. She had remnants of typhoid in her gallbladder. Nobody ever suspected that she was the one that was causing typhoid outbreaks. And sure enough, she was because she would cook. And then, you know, a couple days later, three people in the house would end up having typhoid. And then she'd move away. And as soon as she got like into a new house, those, those people, people ended up getting typhoid. Mary, Malone's gallbladder led to people um, understanding the efficiency of contact tracing 
to find the cause of an illness because they started to realize, okay, what do all these families have? In common. Oh, it was Mary. And then it also led to some sticky stuff like, can you quarantine a person? How do you treat a person that you know is giving the sickness? How do you treat them? Is it fair to quarantine them for the rest of their life? You know, that's a sticky problem too. I mean, at one point it's like, yes, it saves people's lives, but at the same time, you're taking away her freedom. Just well, a couple- can you live without your gallbladder? Yes, you actually can. And one of the things was she was put in a asylum, if I'm not mistaken, to be separated from the rest of the population. And they told her, we'll let you out of the asylum if you agree to a gallbladder surgery. Which she said no. I don't blame her because back then, gallbladder surgery was not, you know, it was very risky. People were still trying to Any understand. Any kind of surgery was risky back then. Well, yeah, because you're still understanding, you're tr still trying to understand the concept of germs, right? They didn't have sterile. Sterility wasn't a big thing then. No. Being, be working in a sterile environment for medicine was not a big thing yet. Also, I mean, it's hard to believe in a, when we, you don't have the science behind it like what we do. It's hard to tell somebody you're causing the sickness when you yourself are not experiencing that sickness. Right. So with her is a very interesting case. But once again, it changes history because we all of a sudden start to realize that contact tracing is effective. It also brings us to these moral arguments of, is it fair to quarantine someone for the safety of other people, but then take away her freedom or... Force her to get an operation. That she doesn't want. want. Exactly. And so, I know I just found this book to be very interesting. Not the way that I am used to thinking about history. True. It's 229 pages with little side tidbits. Like I said, it's an easy read. It's also funny. It's funny because like the Martin Luther one is like, you don't... <laughs> you don't think about people sitting on the toilet. So. No, and that was so, I mean, think about it. The Protestant Reformation then leads to Henry VIII divorcing his wife, changing England from Catholicism, and then essentially he gets excommunicated by the Catholic Church because he's Protestant. So it leads to all these Wars consequences and... yeah, that really. change and affect, even today, change and affect our lives, you know? Maybe not to the biggest degree, but you know, they still affect our lives to a degree. It all started with a man in his toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, that's pretty great. Just a couple of the other people, the bell, um, Alexander Graham Bell, Kaiser Willingham's arm, Lennon's skin, Einstein's brain, Frederick Gallo's spine, Alan Shepard's bladder. The Alan Shepard's bladder was very interesting because I don't think I ever paid attention to how astronauts have to go to the restroom. And that one was pretty interesting, but also like, ugh. <laughs> All right, well, glad I'm not an astronaut for that reason. But yeah, that is the book that I read. And so I would say if you like how they croaked, this is along the same lines. All right, guys, till we meet again, actually, it'll be a new year. Yep, won't be till so January. So hope you guys enjoy your holidays with your families and friends. And um, I'd say keep warm, but right now it is 
pretty warm. Yeah, well. Hopefully it gets a little bit cooler. it's Texas. <laughs> yes, it is. Bye, guys. Bye.